Welcome to Just One More Thing, the podcast about Columbo. I'm John Morris. And I'm R.J. White. This time we're talking about the episode Etude in Black, originally aired September 17th, 1972, starring John Cassavetes, Blythe Danner, Myrtle Loy, and of course Peter Falk as Columbo. It was written by Stephen Bochco. The story was by Columbo creators Richard Levinson and William Link, and it was directed by Nicholas, coach from Cheers, Colasanto. And, of course, every episode we're joined by a special guest who helps us discuss the show. This week we are delighted to be joined by writer and editor for The Toast, Mallory Ortberg. But before we get to her, RJ, tell us about today's episode. Basically, uh, John Cassavetes is this uh, very temperamental genius, or so we're told he's a genius, uh, conductor for the Los Angeles Symphony Orchestra. Uh, he's married, married to a woman... Uh, whose mother has lots and lots and lots of money, but he's been having an affair with a concert pianist who is trying to get him to divorce his wife or she'll reveal the whole affair. He doesn't like this so much, so he kills her by knocking her on the head with a heavy ashtray wrapped in a napkin, then turning the gas on in the stove to make it look like she killed herself. Of course, Columbo's not buying this, uh, and so he pursues him the entire time, breaks down all the guy's alibis, one of which completely hinged upon having his car in the garage or something. I don't know. It wasn't a very well thought out plan. But anyway, uh, Columbo does get to him, traps him, thanks to a boutonniere, a missing boutonniere. That's it. Oh, and also, uh, in the course of uh, faking lady suicide, he murders a bird. He murders her bird. Bird murder. <laughs> Disgusting. Cer- certainly Columbo's first, but maybe not only bird murder. No, he always wants birds to die of old age. Oh, that's, that's very sweet. That's yeah, very sweet. Um, before we get going, though, I want to um, tell everyone, if you want to write to us, we have an email address now, Columbo at thecitydesk.net. Uh, if you have questions, comments, uh, tell us that we're awful and we suck at this, that's fine, too. We'll take those emails. We'll read them on the air. We don't care what you say. We, we welcome all haters, Columbo haters, John and RJ haters. I'm sorry, Mallory Ortberg. Maybe Mallory Ortberg haters. I don't know. I, I don't a... welcome that. No, okay. No. Well, well, we, well, we'll else forward your studio. You can do whatever you want with them. Not, um, neither do I welcome that. Let's not invite the haters. Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm aching for a fight. I'm ret- no, I'm not. I'd, cry. Uh, I'd start crying. Fair point. All right. Well, we might as well uh, go ahead and get started with the show. Uh, welcome to the program, Mallory Ortberg. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, thanks for doing this. Um, one of the reasons we, we definitely wanted you on the show was because of this uh, great column you wrote about Columbo um, at thetoast.net uh, a few months ago, uh, where you make an excellent case uh, about Columbo maybe needing to have a larger uh, kind of uh, part in yeah. American culture. Yeah, go ahead, tell folks about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I talked about how he's really uh, America's answer to Doctor Who, uh, because he has this wonderful role that he inhabits where, you know, so many of the really famous detectives, your Poirots, your Sherlock's, um, even your murder she wrote, they're high class, they're wealthy, they've got expensive clothes, and he's just this wonderful, determined, blue collar, dumb looking guy uh, who just is passionate about the underdog. Uh, and I feel like he does not get the respect that he deserves among famous detectives. Yeah, I mean, he seems like he's well-liked, but, you know, I, I don't... You don't hear him 
talked about a lot. He's talked about like, oh, it's this old beloved TV show, detective show, but it's a really just damn good mystery show. I mean, better than a lot that I've seen. It's yeah. Yeah, it's it's wonderful, and and I love that the question is never who did it. Uh, it's always how is Columbo going to trap them in a lie? Yeah, just just like working, grinding away at it, and just working night and day just to get these usually uh, rich and powerful jerks. Well, and I, I feel like especially that's why now of all times is is so ripe for a Columbo renaissance. Oh, yeah. Because it's, it's the wonderful example of the working man going after rich sons of bitches and exactly, yeah. making them pay for their crimes. And that this episode actually is a very good example of that. This is almost the Ur episode thanks to the conversation about the, the value of the mansion. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh that's an oh. amazing scene. Well, let's, 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 let's go into this then. We'll uh, bring talk about the column and the episode as we go through um so yeah let, let's everybody just to jump in with whatever you noticed first and what you thought of this thing well let's uh we'll, we'll review that really quickly um the the bit of trivia i uncovered about this episode uh and by uncovered i mean i read imdb's trivia section uh <laughs> is that uh, originally it was shot for a 90 minute time slot uh, nbc asked after filming was wrapped up to extend it by another half an hour which is about mm. 21 additional minutes of footage Jeez. And, I can uh, see that. It seemed longer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and Colasanto, I don't think, directed any of that. I believe Falk and Cassavetes directed all of that. Really? Oh. Well, the, the, and, the, part in the, uh, the part in the mansion, they're talking about how much is worth and all that stuff. Oh, that part yes. was great. Oh, okay. That is, that is also clearly shot later because Cassavetes had a haircut. Oh. Uh, <laughs> okay. He had he had a flip of conductor hair for most of the episode, oh, except wow. when Columbo was asking him about the uh, the value of the house. But it's a it, it's the exchange they have is Columbo inveils himself into the home, uh, uh, humbles himself before Cassavetes and an invisible wife. Uh, by refusing to enter a living room because he knows that's how wives are. And right. has a brief encounter with Mr. Miyagi from the I know, karate yes, Pat Morita. Playing a sudden Pat Morita. Oh my goodness, and, and boy, not, not any type of stereotype uh, character at all. Let's put a pin in Pat Morita because I want to come back to that okay, character. Right. Uh, also, congratulate me for inventing the sentence, let's put a pin in Pat Morita. <laughs> Uh, but the the conversation becomes uh, Columbo slowly eking out of uh, of Cassavetti's character uh, the value of the house in right. kind of an impudent way. And the point of it being, he's really trying to nail down how rich the guy is, right? So yeah. he can follow the money. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But then another thing I got from that scene though too was um, the way Cassavetti's plays, and, and also. Uh, if you've got an episode and you need to uh, have someone sitting around directing part of it, you can do worse than have, just having uh, John Cassavetes on hand. Right. Yeah, maybe direct 20 minutes of your TV show. They got lucky there. Um, but uh, just the way Cassavetes plays this part uh, with Col- with uh, Peter Falk, you kind of could imagine that both these guys grew up could have grown up in neighborhoods not that far from each other back in New York City, and their lives just took very clearly divergent paths. You know, the geniuses mm-hmm. in different fields... But, yeah, then one became rich and became a huge jerk about being rich and desperately doesn't want to let go of being rich. Yeah. No, and it's such a wonderful example of who Columbo is, where he starts off the conversation almost immediately by saying, I make $11,000 a year. Which, when I looked that up, and in $1972, that was $62,000 a year. Which, yeah, so I take it's that not, now. That'd yeah. be great. I, I don't make that now. Yeah, I would definitely no, I take that. Um, <laughs> but just, Are you considering becoming a murder cop in It's such a wonderful mix of, um, you know, he's humbling himself, but it's also very aggressive. I killed the and conversation. It's also, 
Uh, yeah, they're talking about. Uh, he, I think it's that um, John tells him how much he has to pay in property taxes every year, and from that amount, Columbo guesses how much the house oh, is worth. He knows. He knows how to do it. He's like, oh well, it's standard, you know, real estate finance. He knows it. it's <laughs> right there. Like, it's amazing. How the heck would? And I'm sure it throws him off. Like, well, how does this schlubby-looking homicide cop know that? Yeah. And I don't even think at this point that he knows he's a homicide cop. I think there's that great moment about 45, 50 minutes into the episode where he says, this is no longer a suicide investigation. This is my specialty. I'm in homicide. Oh, yeah. And there's just that great realization. And I think there was a really good music sting there, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Also. You know, the, the episode is really heavy on the... I was watching this again this afternoon with my parents, who are both from L.A., and they were just cracking up at the idea that in the middle of the afternoon, he could run to his mechanic shop from the Hollywood Bowl, <laughs> drive across town, not be seen, get back, all without getting caught in traffic. Yeah, his plan did really rely on absolutely nobody being on the street by the garage. <laughs> That's right, yes. At what appeared to be 4.30 in the afternoon? Right, because, I mean, it, it's... You, you've got to mention this big concert is probably going on uh, the air about 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it was probably, yeah, late afternoon when it would be rush hour, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, right, there should have been at least one scene of him sitting on the 405. <laughs> I, of course, what you do see in, in sunny L.A. all the time is a man in a full trench coat, <laughs> just buttoned up, running yep. at top speed, too. Wearing murder gloves. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that murder scene, though, that was, uh, I did not see that coming. I did not think he was going to try to knock her out, because that's really hard to fake. Well, I mean, there's a bit of, well, there is a bit of a fake there where he puts his hand kind of around her neck to kiss her when he mm-hmm. first comes up right. there, like, ooh, that's how he's going to do it. Nope. Nope, just clocks yep. her on the head with a piece of pottery. My, my yeah. wife and I were actually, we actually expected Blythe Danner to get it. Yep. Oh, yep. Really? I did, too. Oh, uh, okay. She was being so sweet and supportive and such, like, a present wife. Right. And we were just snapping back and forth, like, no wonder he wants to murder her. But no, she got a, she got out okay, except for giving birth to Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes, that's right. Um, I'm going to bring that up. The special uh, hidden guest, uh, my wife, uh, Laura, knows this when we were watching it the first time. Um, the entire time, like about half partway through, she gets at her like, phone, she's like, i got to look up IMDb. What? i got to find out when somebody was born. I'm like, oh, okay. She's, she's pregnant there. Look at her little tennis dress. Like, oh, yeah, I guess she is. I just did not notice she was pregnant at all. Wow. But, uh, yeah, it turns out Gwyneth Paltrow then was in an episode of Columbo. Good for her. Because she was about five months sort of. pregnant on this thing. Yeah, sort of, in a way. She yeah, in the idea bad. that, like, if you were behind a wall while they were filming Columbo, you'd be on Columbo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah, they did a... They, all of her... Uh, all of Blythe Danner's outfits have some kind of wrap or scarf, or uh, she has a sweater in the tennis scene, something she can hang over her stomach. Right, yep. yes. Yep. But and at I one point, that... she's actually kind of walking and kind of doing the thing... Uh, someone who's pregnant does, like holding her stomach, I think, right. hand on top, hand on bottom, which... Not wow, you guys subtle. really picked up on this. <laughs> we we watch with a critical eye. I think I was spending so much time just being amazed at Myrna Loy and how she barely yes. aged. Oh my right? god, she's great in this. She I looked amazing. She did, she looked wonderful. I wish they had cast her as the murderer. I, wa- I would watch oh, the Columbo where Myrna Loy kills someone. Oh, I'd love to see her. Just be all kind of cold and sophisticated about it and everything. Right. Oh, it'd be, oh, it'd be amazing. Oh, drinking, drinking a martini over someone's prone body? She'd yes. be fantastic. <laughs> oh, um, man. Drenched in jewels, upper class, and sinister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you That'd go. That'd be perfect. I, I really enjoyed how she was clearly performing from a different 
different era of performance. Oh yeah, like there's where, that, that scene in the restaurant where the, with George with George Gaines, yeah. yeah. George Gaines mm-hmm. too. There, there, that whole scene. I mean, George Gaines pretty much playing uh, Otis Chandler. <laughs> you know, um, and there's a whole thing right there. Like, there's another kind of story underneath that about how you've got like the rich strata of Los Angeles very forcefully with all of their money trying to inject some culture into the town and the newspapers mm-hmm. helping along with that wherever they can, you know, suppressing stories and putting all yeah, the Myrtle- stuff out there. And that's exa- there's like so much packed into that little exchange for like two minutes where you could like read entire books about what that's really about, which I thought was amazing. It felt like, it felt like a Truman Capote short story in the middle a bit, of a yeah. Columbo episode. Yeah. 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 And then, uh, yeah, Blythe Danner. So Danner has no lines in that scene when Gaines is speaking with Loy. No. Because she's she's got to be an out character on that. Because to to go back to what Mallory was saying earlier, that was it Mallory? No, it was, sorry, it was RJ who was saying earlier that uh, Cassavetti's character felt like he could have been a poor kid from the streets who made it mm-hmm. good. So she might already have like a, a bridge into the world of what Myrna Loy said was not one of us. Right. Well, yeah. and what's oh, amazing totally. yeah. uh, uh, about that is, uh, you know, Blake Danner is very kind to him and Myrna Loy, oh. while an overbearing character is not like this awful woman who keeps, you know, oh, no, pulling no. the strings. Right. Right. Like I, I was amazed when he went to kill the mistress. Cause I thought she just said, either leave your wife or stop seeing me. She didn't say I'm going to go to the public. Right. He he's just awful. He's oh, a yeah, pretty he's a, nice wife and a pretty reasonable mistress. He's a terrible, terrible dude. Well, the one thing though that that says volumes two in that that uh, that lunch scene is when Blythe Danner finally does say something. The scene ends with Myrna Loy saying, "Okay, well now I'm going to order for you." Oh God! Oh, that's yes. right. And it's like, oh wow, that says a lot about Blythe Danner's character's like entire life right there. That it's mm-hmm. just spent with that sort of stuff going on. And you can see like. Uh, when they're having the fight, she and uh, Cassavetes are having the fight um, the night of the murder, where she stayed up, she took a sleeping pill or whatever, and he just kind of puts it on her, like, oh yeah, I'm sleeping all over town. It's like kind of the same treatment almost of her. Yeah. yeah. So she just yeah. always has been involved from her family to the guy she ended up marrying with being treated like that, which is really sad. Yeah. Yeah. She she didn't get a ton to do in this episode, but the look on her face when uh, her husband knows the girl's phone number without asking right. anyone. Oh yeah, that was wonderful. really well done. And and at the end too, um, when he's trying to fix the whole thing with her, saying like, "Well, you know, just kind of tell him we did this thing." She said, "What'd she say? Like, I could have, uh, I could have stood for anything, Alex. Anything girl, else, but not murder." Oh my god. Like, obviously, she has, up to this point, stood for absolutely everything else. Yes. Like, right. she probably knew, she probably, yeah, I mean, she has reasons I'm, to suspect that he's been sleeping around before this, and, yeah. You know, I actually, I find it surprising that they didn't include her pregnancy in the storyline. Hmm. Yeah, it, I don't know, it, if they figured that'd be too sad and tragic, or what? Or that'd be, yeah, I don't know. Too it it might have been standards at the, in 1972, there might have been standards saying you couldn't have a wife raising a, you know, or implying that a woman would be raising a child alone, maybe? Well, yeah, but but then you have Cassavetes uh, kind of creeping out the pianist when uh, she, when he shows up there. She says, oh, the hair is my neck are standing up. He goes, oh, that's just sex. That's okay. Oh, that's right. That, that's okay <laughs> for standards. For Super creepy one. There is a definite tendency on Columbo to have uh, really gorgeous young mistresses with really, um, I would say, interesting older character actors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm just always really impressed at the level of of girl that they managed to snag because I just think, 
I don't think I don't think that would win me over. Someday we're going to get around to the Suzanne Plachette Eddie Alpha <gasps> Oh, which is oh, wow. the least convincing romance I've ever seen on screen. Uh, it was it was like Vertigo bad. <laughs> uh, I don't want to get to that one because it just creeps me out them being together at all. What I love about that episode, just to make a quick aside, is that Eddie Albert plays a war hero in that. He's incredibly unconvincing as a war hero, even though in real even though in real life he's a war hero. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but put him on a farm with Jean Jacques Gabor, and, and he was a natural. Everything yeah. exactly. Wonderful performer. Guys, we have not yet talked about Columbo's dog. Oh, that's right. Oh. This episode, it, it's a very important thing. It actually introduces his dog. It's, it's the first issue appearance of Dog. Do- that's dog's, dog's debut. Name. Who was almost named Fido, but not quite. Yeah, somehow somehow the, the, his veterinarian, I thought his veterinarian was being sarcastic. His veterinarian, I think, was being sincere about, you know, I don't hear the name Fido that often. Yeah. So, so called it Fido. Yeah. He had all this knowledge about it. He like he was he was like a battleship on patrol waiting to suggest fight out to somebody. Yes. And and the vet is kind of odd, keeps odd hours and a, a TV uh, loudly playing music uh right <laughs> in the uh, examination room. Yeah, that one's right. a little on the nose. <laughs> I hope I do hope if you watch this episode you really like Beethoven's 6th cuz you will hear it a few times. And you won't and you won't see John Cassavetes conducting anywhere near it. Holy Oh boy. There's there's no musical performance in this episode anywhere near the actual song except for Columbo playing chopsticks. <laughs> yes, oh, exactly. That was perfect. Yeah. Let's jump to that scene because that was an amazing. Which I think yes. also my I no you know what I paid attention to the hair, hmm. and Cassavetti's hair was was long in that one, so that was an original shot. When it points out to what you were talking about earlier, where they could have possibly come from similar backgrounds, there's a moment of warmth and rapport between them when John Cassavetti says, "I haven't heard chopsticks since I was a kid." Right. Uh, and you can tell he really means it. He's not just making fun of him. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, these guys, I I mean, the, that's the thing I love about this episode is these guys, in real life, they've got a history together. They've, they've been performing together many, many times. I have to admit, though, I've never seen Husbands, and I feel like I really should have before I watched this again, but eh, I didn't see it. But, I mean, that that's kind of the great thing about those two, seeing them play off of each other in this episode. Because they're you, really did... comfortable with it. Did you at least watch the appearance of Cassavetes, Gazzara, and Falk on, on the Dick Cavett show? <laughs> Were there oh. out of the gorge? No, I haven't oh seen my God. that yet. I, gotta we, I watch that on a monthly basis. <laughs> <laughs> we have to link that from the website. All right. the, the single most uncomfortable, what is it, 45 minutes in television history? Oh, boy. It does not stop. It does not stop. Yeah, I love that you can recognize on their incredibly drunk faces how they think they're being hilarious. Yep, yep, and getting totally getting away with it. No one can tell. <laughs> well, that's a, a let's, cat, um, I, I read this uh, Cavett writing about this a while ago, and yeah, he said it just was terrible, and uh, the audience just turned on them, and they got backstage right after the show, and one of the producers or something in the film that they were uh, promoting said, like, well, congratulations, you just unsold more tickets than anything. And then right away they realized, oh, crap, we screwed up. And Cavett said for years after that, whenever you'd see any of them just kind of out at social occasions, this kind of acted like they were kind of feeling bad to see him and still sorry about it. Ruining <laughs> that night so badly. But you know, as, as soon as they got yelled at, they just went to Denny's and had a blast. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, I'll go, I'll, one, one more thing it. about the, uh, the veterinarian. Um, yeah. like the reason he's watching it in the his office says, oh, well, yeah, I watch that. I like the music. My wife likes to watch the mystery shows. 
And I'm thinking, since this is the uh, second season, uh, we haven't gotten to the uh, the uh, Shatner episode. His wife probably home watching a Detective Lucerne in the Colombo verse. <laughs> An excellent point. Fair, fair point, and well made. Thank yep. you. How how long do you think he was playing chopsticks before, uh, <laughs> before he showed up? Because <laughs> just it's, hours, just yeah. waiting yeah. for him. This to is walk gonna in. drive him nuts. I know. it. Never getting any better. I uh, I was reading somebody uh, who's you know a musician was talking about how the least realistic part of this uh, was the idea that two musicians who were in love would be talking over a piano and one would say play something for me and then they'd say what do you want me to play and they would say something as vague as Chopin <laughs> right. just, awesome. mu- just music could you play an etude <laughs> uh, <laughs> in black if at all possible uh, there's a there's a shot so the the chopstick scene is one of the best. The The stairwell scene where they discuss the price of the house is one of the best. I'm very fond of the conversation that Columbo has when he first gets to the murder house. Oh, my God, that thing. It's just a kind of heartbreaking. It is. Sunglasses so shot? No, no. It's oh, not even that. Oh, no. That, actually, yeah, we were talking about this uh, before the show that, um, yeah, like uh, Nicholas Colasanto makes a whole bunch of really interesting, neat um, just choices. But, yeah, that sunglasses shot... It's just really strange out of nowhere. Uh, the moment when uh, Cassavetes is conducting and he realizes the boutonniere is missing. Right. And he, he looks down and it just end. zooms in on the still frame as the music's still playing in the background. It's so strange. And then there's the... Um, oh. And also, uh, j- just like the very small thing of uh, the way the director did um, uh, the television camera stuff too, where mm-hmm. you're in the control room. And so he... It's it's not actually video on those monitors. It's like insert shots in there. But like he set up multiple camera setups for the same scene, so it's so you're getting that sense of oh yeah, actually he is being a jerk to these guys in the control room, and that's exactly what they're seeing. He's such a jerk in this to everybody he works with. <laughs> He's such yeah, he, a dick. He does a fake British accent at his. Oh, that time. was oh yeah, oh, that was yes. so, so condescending. And then you know it's a uh, the woodwinds are all fucked, and I, I don't like the I don't like the xylophone. Fix it. You're, oh, it's you're a genius. Handle it. <laughs> oh. it. Yeah, when he when he called him a genius, it certainly didn't sound like a compliment. Yeah, no. you know, that mechanic fucks with his car as soon as he leaves. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Come pee in this, boys. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Uh, no, but the... the uh, oh, so the uh, the eyeglass scene, or the sunglass scene, really quick, I think might have just been a callback to Death Lends a Hand, which was a season one episode with Robert Culp. Oh. Where you actually watch the murder play out in oh, the reflection right, of Culp's glasses. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, because I remember, I didn't love the way the camera zoomed in on the boutonniere after it fell. I felt like that really... T- but I did love the shot where he realizes that he's left them there, and you see it in his sunglasses. Yeah. Yes. So if I have to have it, I, I want to keep the sunglasses shot. It's, okay, good. Let me, but, let me uh, make a note of that. Yeah, <laughs> don't cut it. Sunglasses shot. All right, good. The, uh, the the scene right before that, though, is when Columbo first gets there, and he's talking to one of the other police officers, and he has this sort of wistful long speech starting starting by sounding kind of creeping on the girl like she's lovely she's got a good figure bedroom eyes oh yeah and then as he but as he talks more you realize he's assembling evidence she's beautiful she's accomplished she's intelligent she's traveled the world yeah she should have a guy and then i think what he says is should be a man should be someone yeah Mm -hmm. and just points out that if she had no one in her life that's something to look at it's a it's a great bit and then of course he ends on that really sad and poignant, uh, that's just me, I want everyone to die of old age. 
Ugh. Well, plus he's got yeah. that also in there as a line I thought was interesting. He's like, oh, I'm just a paranoic. Every time I see a dead body, I think it's a murder. Right. Like, oh, my God. What an amazing I, thing ooh. to say. I love that. And and I think, uh, you know, that one line, I'm paranoid. Every time I see a dead body, I think it's a murder. That's why he makes a great detective. Yes. And that's about wanting everyone to die of old age is what makes him a good person. Yes. And that's what oh. makes him so much more compelling to me than a lot of the other detectives out there is there's this uh, wistful morality at the heart of him. And um, you just feel like he wanted this girl to live. That's another thing that's missing from a lot of modern detectives mm-hmm. is very often they're driven by a uh, they they're all batmaned a little bit they're all driven yes. by a personal <laughs> tragedy. Yeah. yeah. But uh I I mentioned CI per- uh, Law and Order CI periodically because the uh the Vincent D'Onofrio character and the Jeff Goldblum characters mm-hmm. had Columbo elements. Uh but the, the Jeff Goldblum in particular was an upper class uh intelligentsia Columbo. And the and the D'Onofrio was meant to be the uh, sort of brain damaged or mentally damaged Columbo, <laughs> uh, and they're both driven by their parents, and they're both driven by losses in their youth. Um, I don't, I won't go too far into it, but the very last uh, Jeff Goldblum CI is an incredibly Columbo-like story in that it takes place entirely in a brownstone with uh, a rich family and a a, a, a a maybe crazy daughter who's been locked away by her family. And turns out that he had an affair with her, or a love affair, when they were younger. And that's part of the thing that drives him to be a cop. Except for that part, beauty, a very Columbo-like episode. I like that Columbo doesn't have to have a tragedy motivating him to just be a good person. No. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you take his story at his word, he's got a wife and a dog at home. Mm-hmm. And he has a pretty happy home life. He's not rich, but he's not, um, you know, tormented and distraught by something awful he saw a long time ago. He's just a good person. And, and yeah. also, this is his job, and he's good at yep. it. It's his job. It's what he does for a living. Mm. Yeah. That's one of the things that does make him such a great investigator, too, is, and they, they play this card a lot, where he's just really friendly and interested in people. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, uh, and it can be really disturbing really with that, yeah. Yeah. It helps with the scene with the little girl throughout the movie. Right. Oh, right, uh, yes. in anybody else's hands... Yeah, uh, that could get really creepy really fast. <laughs> the precocious little girl who wandered in from a '70s Neil Simon movie or play. Oh God! Pretty much. Yeah, she, she should has... be in Paper Moon. She is sassy. <laughs> nice. She has that great line about. Uh, uh, he tells her he's very impressed with her. She says, "My mind or my body." <laughs> yes. What? what? That's a. That's an amazing line for, I guess, a 13-year-old, 12-year-old girl? Yeah. That's, that's a line from The Graduate. That's an Anne Bancroft <laughs> line. And she's, she's wearing, like, a smock as she says it. She has no figure to speak of. It. It's just wonderful. That child should be smoking. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, she even shoots down Fido really beautifully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you got to leave the window cracked, Columbo. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. It's his first Great. dog. He doesn't know. <laughs> Yeah, he's never had a dog before. Did I hear that right? No. I don't think you need to have had a dog in order to know that you can't leave well, it in the car in Los Angeles right, without yeah. the window crack. I wasn't saying that. I was just saying <laughs> that he's he's in his 40s in this episode, I think right. we can assume. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I think, I'll have to go back and check, I think he says he's never had a dog before. He says no, I think never, you're right. He's never had a dog before. But the reason he got the dog, he's still in the vet, uh, is because he was kind of, you know, on his... Last it was his, at the pound. his time was up. His time was yep. up. Yeah, he, he so that's he what he does in his spare time. He Save felt dogs. bad for the sad, odd hound dog and just adopted him like right there that day. There is every that, chance that that dog oh, was owned oh, by a oh. <laughs> the dog oh. was owned by a murder victim. Oh my god! I wonder. 
Oh man! Maybe that, he took the bird and tried to resuscitate it too. <laughs> no, that 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 was a nice little moment because um, he's going through there. I mean, you've got like a like a, a dead woman in the kitchen, and he walks past a bird cage, and he lifts the cover on it, and he makes this little noise, and, and it's almost like any other show that would be the noise somebody would make when they actually lift a like the a shroud on a human corpse, and he felt mm-hmm. like that about the bird being murdered. Yep, and you know, on a lesser show, the bird would still be alive, and it would have repeated their last argument. <laughs> And that was speaking been bird. I don't him. know, but it is. It's talking. I am going to leave my wife. This is Chopin. 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 She does so play Chopin. Bless her heart. She does. So, <laughs> so is it is it an accident at all uh, that when the um, orchestra is is playing the music, the the, the uh, orchestration for that film they're doing, that it's a documentary where the first thing you see is a giant Hitler head. <laughs> It cuts uh, to, he's he's conducting the orchestra on a documentary about Hitler. So you see the giant Hitler head before then you get into the scene with him being a jerk again to everybody. Uh, which I thought was... Ah, funny is the wrong word with Hitler, but, you know, it's yeah. interesting, yeah. It was it was really jarring. Um, I, I was looking for the metaphor, and I can't find it. Yep. But it's important to remember, like, I think Cassavetes and, and Falk and everybody involved in this production remembered Hitler. Like... He doesn't have the mythical feeling that he has to us because they were all alive in the 40s. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, go. I mean, for, for us, it's more of like, it's kind of like seeing a corporate icon, like an evil corporate icon, but... Like I, I, evil... I still associate him with uh, pretty bad... Th- I mean, I mean, every the bad things, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Boy, whenever you bring Hitler into a podcast, oh, it just kind of yeah. derails just the got... entire conversation. Yeah. We godwind our own podcast. Ah, crap. Now we gotta stop. Maybe well, it was part of the Myrna Loy backstory we didn't get to see. Could be. <laughs> Could be. Oh, that's, uh, so we can either talk about how Cassavetes, for some reason, is dressed like he works at Foot Locker. <laughs> and really, or, really likes that uh, seersucker jacket with the brown shirt underneath. And is a dead ringer for Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, let's talk about this, Mallory. A dead ringer. You didn't know who John Cass or you didn't recognize oh. John Cassavetes. Yes, I, I, I need to confess this. This is really <laughs> embarrassing. Okay. I have spent the longest time mixing up, and I'm not even sure I'm going to say his name right, John Cazal. Yeah. yeah. I've been mixing up John Cazal and John Cassavetti, so I kept waiting for Fredo to show up. Oh. And I kept saying to my parents, no, 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 this can't be the murderer. Fredo's going to be showing up <laughs> any minute now. And about oh. 45 minutes in, my dad said, I really don't think that's going to happen. And of course, I had to look it up and I realized I had been confusing the two. And John Cazell was never on Columbo, which made me really sad. Well, that's not surprising. It seems like John Cazell would have been a guy who would have been on Columbo. He seems like a Columbo guy. He would have been a great Columbo guy. Yeah. Either a murderer or somebody, yeah. Or did, you, did you think all of Cassavetti's films were directed by Cazal? I don't know. Okay. I honestly don't think I don't think I was that far gone. Um, I think it was just a simple mix-up. But uh, it just doubled the number of great actors in your life. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but oh, Cazal would have been so great. He would have been the saddest, most hangdog, puppy dog eye murderer, and Columbo would have hated to have to bring him in. Or, or I could fantastic. see him. I could see him maybe being um, involved in the murder with someone else. Like mm-hmm. somebody very forceful who made him an accessory somehow, and so he's kind of coming apart. He's fraying at the seams. He's about ready to confess the whole thing, and then mm-hmm. so the murderer bumps him off. Yeah, he would have been a good life Danner. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah, because she really not quite loses it by the end, but she's not really... She's going to draw the line at murder. <laughs> yes, that's right. It, maybe that was in their vows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to honor and, and obey and I'll draw the line at murder. Oh, and I, I love uh, when it gets... I mean, she kind of suspects something the whole time, but just doesn't want to mm-hmm. think it. Right. And and um, I, I love, like, just before that, when Columbo finally puts together at Myrna Loy's office, where... He's asking her, like, oh, well, you know, what about this? She said, would, would that include uh, Alex with people who would be cut off if they hurt your daughter, the orchestra? She said, oh, especially Alex. And just that look on his face is great. And he says, you know, I will yeah. have that drink. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah, that was Cause, wonderful. Because he never does do that. Like, he's offered drinks all the time in the show. He never takes them on duty. So it was just weird to hear, like, oh, oh, he actually is going to have a little bit of a little bit of a snort with her. Which is kind of I, I would have loved to have seen just footage after they stopped shooting for the day of Myrna Loy and Peter Falk getting drunk together. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. That he would just, tell, tell me about William Powell again. I'm also, I'm also really kind of annoyed now that Myrna Loy was never tapped to do a mystery series of her own in the 70s, because I think she probably could have really carried one just by herself. Yep, yep. I, I know for me. Oh, sorry. It's too bad because she would have been great in. You remember that Peter Falk movie? I think in '76, Murder by Death. Yes. Oh, uh, oh, the, the, yeah. The, she would have been Neil fantastic Simon in that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. She would have been what a fantastic. Uh, would you give her Agatha Christie or just let her play an older uh, Nora Charles? <laughs> That's a good question because Maggie Smith was a great Nora Charles. Yeah. But, um, it, she was with David Niven, yeah, and right. he was Myrna Loy's age, so I think Myrna could have easily done that. Yeah. Should um should we take a pin out of Pat Morita? Oh yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's let's discuss let's take it a little bit. It's odd. So this is yeah. I'm watching a lot of the '90s ones in anticipation of finally getting around to watch to talking about those. Hmm. And this character of the the ethnic help who doesn't speak a lot of English but talks very excitedly and quickly. Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Never hmm. dies. Really? Yeah. They still use him then? They're using him in the '90s. There, I was. RJ and I were talking about a, uh, a Dabney Coleman episode from the 90s, and there's almost an identical character, another yeah. a Japanese gardener who has almost the same shtick. Oh, boy. Tina Fey used that same thing in 2007's Baby Mama. She had the sassy doorman. Oh, really? Yeah, he was the sassy doorman who told her, explained to her that she was in a Baby Mama situation. Uh, that's all that he did. Oh, right, yes. Oh. Yeah, so that's, yeah. that's alive and well. I, I That's one of my least favorites. I... In Columbo's defense, particularly in the later episodes, they use it very often to diminish Columbo's social standing. Mm. Because he finds himself as a peer to a lot of these menial servants who, don't, who do manual labor and don't have an entree into the society because they don't speak English. Mm. In the same way that he's very often mistaken for a bum, or anytime he has to go to a soup kitchen, necessarily they try to give him soup. <laughs> Like that scene in The Simpsons when they try to give Homer a new jacket. Right. <laughs> uh, there's one episode uh, further down the road where there's a Russian cleaning woman at an office building who it just it becomes this really absurd thing where Falk is where Columbo's asking her to, to help her to help him find a piece of paper in a trash can and she's yammering him in Russian and chasing him around and he's yelling at her Trash can, trash can and then it ends, they, it wraps up with a hug and a kiss, and she's delighted by him, and he leaves. And they play it as equals, but yeah, that, that particular ethnic stereotype doesn't die in this show. 
Well, Even though, I will say, Marita plays it really lively, at least. Yeah, I suppose... He's got a lot of spirit in his character. Because he, he was right around uh, doing uh, Happy Days around the same time, wasn't he? Or was 70, it might be a couple years later. Yeah, 72 is a little early. Okay. Uh, I can do another quick real-time check, thanks to the internet. 75. Yeah, yeah oh, at least okay. he went on to bigger and better roles. Uh, no, yeah. sorry, eight, it looks like uh, 19, around 1979, 1980 is when he started... That's when he showed up as Arnold. Right. Okay. Matsuo Takahashi. And, and, and that uh, film with uh, Jay Leno was a couple decades in his future. Something for him to look forward to. Uh-huh. Cops. Ah. Cops in Detroit. Oh, Being the God. expert in Detroit. No, just an um, expert in Jay Leno films. Wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, was that uh, Don Knight who was briefly suspected as the actual murderer? Oh, that's right. We haven't talked about the, the, the hot-headed, flying-off-the-handle, drunk jazz trumpetist. <laughs> Right. Holy cow, that guy. Boy, was that just... part of the subplot that was tacked on to get another 21 minutes? I think so. That seemed like, boy, I didn't really, that was kind of padding things a little bit, to have his whole <laughs> thing. Let me uh, let me double check, because I have some screen caps here, and I can check hair length. Yes, John Cassavetti's hair length is short in the scene <laughs> where he is fingered by the young lady. Oh, my goodness. So to speak. Um, oh, my. I, no, no, not so to speak, just literally. Right. Yeah, anyway, uh, <laughs> don't add innuendo to it. There was none there. Uh, but yeah, so that I, that may have been a subplot that was added to pad it out. It, seemed, it seems like it. The whole thing with... I mean, it did serve to have Cassavetes be a big jerk one more time. Sure. Because he does, oh, yeah, so, great, he does it's this great writing there where he comes in like, Oh, I'm here to defend this guy. Oh, he's a terrible criminal who beats people up. <laughs> you, he's great. You should stick with him, even though you can't, shouldn't trust him because he used to yeah. be in jail. It's not his fault. He beat a woman senseless. Yeah, it's yeah. There's that, a there's there's such an uh, an Alan Partridge and Alpha Papa scene where he's just flat out writing. What is it? Uh, uh, Fire Miles or whatever the character's name was. <laughs> I, I think I'm referencing a movie you guys haven't seen. No, no problem. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. Okay. No, I saw it. But yeah, yeah he, just, like that, he yeah. just goes in there with the appearance of saving the guy's life and digs his yeah. own grave. Uh, but I did like, uh, I like the scene later when Myrna Loy is confronting him. Right. And it it goes off into this sudden departure about it's perfectly okay to smoke weed. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're smoking a gin and tonic. Why shouldn't I be allowed to smoke when I want? Yeah. A lot of my friends smoke grass. I smoke grass. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with it. Out in, like, out of nowhere, which, again, I think leads really, towards being Falk and Cassavetes. I really hope yeah. that Falk just put that in there. Like, you know what? We should be little. I'm going to put this in one of the characters' <laughs> lines. Let's sock puppet this guy. He's got nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's really strange how slowly over the course of the series it just became a vehicle for Falk's libertarian ideals. <laughs> He ends an episode with the murder of somebody named Galt, and they say, who's oh, the killer? And he just says, society. <laughs> and then pan. <laughs> oh, eventually it's just shots of trains. Hold on. I'm, <laughs> I'm making a note to create some images of libertarian Columbo for the blog. <laughs> I'll solve this murder for a fee. What's the worst to you? The, the villain murder. Well, you, you were... Uh... You're a parasite. Parasites deserve to die. Sorry. I think the free market will solve this case. <laughs> I would watch that. Uh, I think it might actually be, especially with our current political climate, we might be set for a libertarian detective show. 
Yeah, I would. I would watch that. I think that would be pretty popular. Well, with your proposal to have uh, Columbo come back, different actors, there could be uh, different Columbos running on different channels simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, one yep. of them could be a libertarian a... Columbo. Uh, one could be a liberal Columbo. One could be kind of a middle of the road Columbo. Zombie yeah. Columbo. Muppet Columbo. Oh. Columbo. Okay. I would watch. I would watch Jason Segel with the Muppets doing Columbo. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, he could pull that off. Actually, just Jason Siegel's Columbo, I think, would actually work. He's a pretty big guy. Yeah, yeah that, that, would, fine, that would be though. a little more... He can, hu- he can mean, hunch Mark over Ruffalo, a little bit. Mark Ruffalo has more of the physical aspects of the character. Yeah. He's a little shorter. He's a little more grizzled. Um, so maybe life needs to beat Jason Siegel down a little bit more. Yeah. I can see him maybe... A, give him another 20, 25 years. Give him... Let's get some Donal Logue on that guy. Oh, yeah. Before yeah. before we let him try. Wow. <laughs> I'll just cast Donal Logue in anything. Uh, we we seem at a natural... Like, I don't think we're done talking about the episode, but you want to do like a, a little side road and talk about alternate casting for Columbo for a little bit? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, no, we can. Yes, because I mean, you brought up uh, some <laughs> really interesting uh, ideas in your column. What I th- mm-hmm. John C. Riley, I felt dumb not thinking about that one before. John yep. C. Riley would be nice. Uh, you, Danny Danny Pudi too, which oh my god, that would really work. Yep, Sam Rockwell especially. Oh, that'd be amazing. Sam, I I've been an advocate for Sam Rockwell playing Columbo. That that would be an incredible. He'd be amazing. I've loved guy. him since Galaxy Quest. I love that guy. I gotta pull you back. I had a guy at a bar last night confront me about the choice of Sam Rockwell as Columbo. Really? What bar uh, bar do you go to where people uh, start fights about Dreamcasting Columbo? A fellow I know, admittedly, had listened to the podcast, and he pulled me aside and goes, I don't like Sam Rockwell as Columbo. Oh, okay. (laughs) We hadn't really gotten the rights to the character yet to start making the films (laughs) next year, but okay. He was just just arguing, too much energy, too much personality, too much charisma. (laughs) <laughs> so we have we have a we have an an anti Sam Rockwell stance. All right, yeah, sure. <clears throat> okay, well, well, yeah, you kind of have this split of the people who embody a lot of Peter Falk's uh, you know characteristics, and then also just someone who would bring something totally different to the role. Like, I would love to see Rhea Perlman yes, as no, Columbo. That's, well, that's when you're called. That's what a was great too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or Kathy Bates. <laughs> I think uh, just again someone who's not super good looking. I, I don't mean that they're unattractive, but just they don't. They look like somebody who's worked for a living their whole lives. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. We're uh, we're really fascinated. A couple of weeks ago, talking about possible women to cast as Columbo. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, Margot Martindale. I mean, you saw her on Justified. She would be amazing. She's pretty intimidating as well. I kind of. She'd have to tone it down. She'd have to. Yeah, she'd, she'd have, have to smoke down. a little grass. It's uh, it's the it's the cruel. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, surveying eyes, like she takes, she appears to take the measure of a person pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. She'd have to metal that out. We were going, we were going through comedians. I had uh, Amy Sedaris as a possibility. Oh yeah, I thought she could play really nice. Uh, and of course, Frances McDormand, which I think is like the obvious choice. Yeah, yeah, but still, so. I'd watch it. Sure. Well, I mean, the thing is, I, I think about your column, bring up the fact, like the idea of that. If you could run through a bunch of these people every couple of years or so, like the whole Doctor Who thing, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge but they fan don't of Doctor have Who. By then. Right, and it would just exactly, yeah. You could just, well, yeah, that's a problem with Doctor Who. That, that's yeah, they they always seem to yep. pick that. Um, it's a problem with Doctor Who. But I mean, going from the Doctor Who thing, the other the really good parallel that you also brought up was the whole thing about uh, Sherlock Holmes, that character having been recast, reinterpreted over the years, and now they seem like they're always locked into this thing of him just being this very cold, calculating, 
uh, computer-minded, socially awkward dick, which, uh, to me, that's not always there in the uh, the original books, but it just no. seems like it's been steered into that direction over the decades. So now, yeah, you've got like the Benedict Cumberbatch one, you've got the Robert Downey Jr. one, and I, I don't know. I, I just think uh, your point about like why Columbo was better than that and more yeah. American, I think, is, is, is a really good point. Yeah, he's not quite locked into that same just like quippy, detached, above it all, attractive guy in a peacoat. Right. Uh, you know, one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes, just to, to retreat a little bit, was, and this will maybe also save me from the wrath of the Doctor Who fans, but Tom Baker. Oh, yeah. Did he play him? When did he play him? Uh, late 70s? Really? Early oh. 80s? Yeah. I can't, I've I think never it was, seen that. I'm sure oh. it was after his Doctor Who. But uh, he plays him with that same kind of garrulous warmth turned to brooding menace that he brought to the Doctor Who character. But it's fascinating with Holmes, who is usually portrayed, especially in the modern day, as having this uh, cool, disdainful, analytic mind. Pretty much just contemptuous <clears throat> of anybody who's not as smart as he is. Exactly. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a warmer performance, which I really appreciated. Because I think that character can be. I mean, there was some warmth there in those stories, and yeah, yeah. it's just been lost over the years, because I guess people just imagine it's more fun to uh, put the character out there as a jerk. There's that, I think. You know, anytime I think you're adapting a character over almost 100 years of film, you're going to get flanderization. You know, just Mm. certain characteristics get louder and bigger, and they become like telegraphs of, now, oh, that's the character. I recognize he's mean, he wears a peacoat, and he smokes a pipe, and he doesn't like anything. Yeah, it's the easy points you hit. And the thing is, Columbo, you kind of have that with him also. Mm -hmm. Cigar, shambling, bad car dog that sleeps all the time just one more thing and right so it could be kind of easy if they did do something like what you're suggesting to kind of get stuck on those too yeah <laughs> i think with stuff one of the things that sherlock has that that columbo may not is it's really tempting from a narrative point of view to make him emotionally distant so that when you get to the inevitable point where he expresses some warmth and fondness mm-hmm. and camaraderie for watson it becomes a big narrative moment yeah but that and, seems like kind of a cheat though it is a super cheat, yeah, yeah. but it's too tempting to avoid. But Columbo doesn't have any kind of built-in narrative relationship thing like that because yeah. he's such a warm, inviting character who's also analytical and critical and, and very aware. And is able to use that warmness, that, that warmth, warmness? Yeah, yeah warm, warm, warmness. That warmth, uh, that, that, that inviting uh, air about him as actually a weapon to get at these mm-hmm. people and to just disarm yeah. them and just get them kind of relaxed and... Screwing right. even more. He's he's kind, but he's kind he's of not devious. nice. Yeah, and he's yes. not running around making best pals with everybody exactly. because he just is full of fuzzies. Uh, he wants to put the guy in jail, and he's going to find it's it's like a mole. Like he's testing every different aspect of a wall for a weakness, and when he finds that weakness, he's going to dig at it and dig at it and dig at it until he can get through. Yeah, right. Which which is that's that, that's uh, I think there was something in this episode too that um, had that thing again where. He had some line, and it just implies that, okay, when you haven't seen him in this episode for the last, like, five, ten minutes, he's mm-hmm. been working from morning to night, just going around town, just beating the shoe leather down, just asking questions, going through files, interviewing other people you're not going to see in this episode at all, just to get mm-hmm. the background information to just surprise people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard oh, one. I... It's neat. What I loved was about halfway through the episode, he doesn't always do this, but when he just said, well, what if we said it was you? 
Uh, oh, yes. Right. John Cassavetes, yes, yes. Which was great. He just comes out and says, like, well, what if we said it was you? How would that work? Yeah. <laughs> he he kind of did something like that in the um, uh, the other Col Santo episode, the one with uh, Johnny Cash, where there's that scene mm-hmm. they're sitting there, and he's just kind of... Saying like, well, what, what what do you think I should tell my superiors? How how would you frame it? Well, Columbo, I'd tell them this, this, and this. You know, <laughs> you're just getting them to dig themselves deeper and deeper. Thinking about making think, them uh, think. Yeah. Do you think, uh, from a tactical standpoint, that's Columbo trying to unnerve the guy, or do you think that's Columbo in a in a very inimitable way suggesting he doesn't have enough yet, so he's literally pitching it to the murderer? Mm. Like, can you can you give me something? I think yeah, put I, it together. I think I remember. Yeah, he does that pretty often. Actually, that is like a tactic of his. He uses. Yeah, and it always seems to work. Apparently, I, I mean, I think on one level, he he feels like a lot of these killers—they're rich, they're important, they're powerful. They look down on everyone else, uh, and he thinks there's a part of them that's really proud of what they did, and they kind of want to brag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I think there's also a part of him that is able to, on some level, connect with the murderer, especially in an episode like this where he and John Cassavetes have struck such a personal, strong connection. Uh, there's a lot less of the irritation and contempt that other murderers have with him. Right. There's a lot more exasperated respect. Um, right. And I oh, think yeah. the two of them get each other a little bit, not not in every way, but a little bit, and that's where that comes from. There's a lot of the, the murderers who do have humble beginnings. Hmm. They... Uh, like I think, actually, everyone we've reviewed so far, Johnny Johnny Cash begins as a kind of a criminal. I think. Yeah, he's, he's uh, William, been in a prison. Yeah. Right. Shatner was uh, uh, what a, a, a soldier, and he escaped from the army. Right. Uh, I'm forgetting one. Who? Oh, the uh, George Hamilton episode. I think was the only one where the guy clearly was rich the whole time. Yeah. Screw him. Yeah, but uh, we don't know from Casavetti's, but I think it's heavily implied that he had no money at all. Yeah, and now he um, desperately wants to hang on to it. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever it takes. Uh, do we? We just lost Mallory. No, oh, we did. Oh well. Okay. Okay. Let's let's hang on a second. I think uh, I think uh, when we get her back, we might kind of wrap things up. Okay. Because this plus the uh, ten minutes or so, and then that we recorded before. Hello, yeah. back. Hey, hey, guys, hey. sorry, I fell out for a second. No worries. No problem. Uh, uh, so, um, overall, what did you guys think of this one? I know, John, I don't usually do this, but you like to append a bit of a, a rating to it. John, how would you rate it? I have no interest in rating it. I will say... Really? Yeah, well, I just mean I'm not going to... You mean, like, stars or thumbs up? Well, I usually say, like, oh, on a, you, you, in the past, you've gone, like, oh, a scale of 1 to 10 or whatever, or 1 to 5. You've, you've done yeah, that. but you put me in a corner, and I'm going to fight back. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm defiant. Or, or a quarter, or maybe it's called a regular feature of the program. Or a regular <laughs> feature of the program. I do, uh, I loved this one a lot. I did, too. Uh, yeah. My my wife was highly annoyed by it because oh, of... Why? Well, no, just because of the inaccuracy in the music. Oh, it's a TV and feed. nobody was playing like well, just shoot around. You I, don't thought, have to I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought uh, Cassavetes so obviously not being a good conductor when he was a genius maestro conductor. I thought right. that was hilarious more than anything else. And interesting. It would have been, it would have been nice to tell him geniuses wouldn't move that much. They would have subtle movements. Yeah, I know, but he's a maestro. Uh, well, hang on, though. It's the L.A. Uh, Philharmonic, and yeah, there you know Gustav down there. He likes to move around. That's true. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I thought this one was... extra classy, because he's really moving his arms. <laughs> That's what the long hair is there for. He can flip it around really <laughs> separately. 
there's people in the in the like the cheap seats. They'll be fine with subtle movements, but the guys in the expensive seats want to see lots of movement. Exactly. I, I didn't pay fifty dollars. <laughs> no, I thought uh, I thought this one was really strong. I thought the bond between Cassavetes and Falk was really great, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, oh, and I thought the the scenes uh, that really concentrated on Columbo's humanity mm-hmm. were some of the the finest character elements in the show to date. I would have loved to have seen the ninety minute version of this. The what version of this? The ninety minute version that you talked oh, about. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I think A that would tighter. have been yeah. wonderful. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, you, I mean, but that means you lose that, uh, that that scene in the house. Uh, that's what the cost of the house. Yeah, that's such a good yeah, scene. You gotta keep that. Oh, can I can I do that. my my annoying trivia thing? Yeah. Speaking oh, sure. of the house, yeah. Please. So uh, this is this is a dumb trivia slash dumb coincidence. The uh, the mansion in which Cassavetti's character lives is a a structure in L.A. called the Bundy House, which is used in a lot of movies and a lot of television shows, uh, particularly in the opening to Benson the Robert Guillaume comedy from the 1980s uh, as the governor's mansion. And, coincidentally, the name of the veterinarian who was caring for Dog at the beginning of the episode was Dr. Benson. What? What? (laughs) Uh, I I want to throw that one out before we wrapped up. No, that's good. Mallory, what did you think? Yes. Uh, I thought that the plot could have been a little tighter, but I thought the acting was so beyond that it made up for it. And I was not distracted by the subpar conducting because I don't know anything about classical music. <laughs> so I don't care. Fair enough. Yeah, I think I, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. There, there was probably some stuff that did not need to be there, especially the, uh, the subplot with the, uh, the jazz, the drunk jazz the trumpeter. He'd smoking jazz trumpeter. Oh, he's such a beatnik. Um, he was. He was, and he was so mad that Peter Falk followed him into that jazz club. You're not here because you're a jazz fiend, and that store next door doesn't sell cigars at all. Guys, just just run through Loverman again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know every store in the area. No one sells cigars. <laughs> um, but yeah, but like uh, like you said, Mallory, the acting was what was really amazing in this. Everybody, I thought Blythe mm-hmm. Danner was great. I mean, you just knew exactly what her character's life has been like. Mm-hmm. Like just a, like, and I love the end. Yeah, I love the end and the way that he whispered to her before he was led away. I love that he called Columbo a genius. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you know, to him, that that's a big, big deal. And and then just before you leave, Columbo and his mechanic. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> the only two geniuses he knows. Um. But yeah, and then but then just for the end, as he's being left led away, he, his last thing to to Blake Danner is, "Oh, just for the record, I love you." It's like, oh, right. okay, well. Oh well, then. All right. Not not your not your money. But yeah, she's like, listen, nice. I murdered my mistress, not you. Isn't that love? <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky, lady. Yeah, there's a there's a scene, the, the look he gives her before Columbo takes them into the room to finish it all up is a fantastic look. Mm-hmm. He's like, it's, oh, it's, crap, this is going to be it. It's, yeah, it's a great look. Yeah. It's, it's clearly him saying, I'm, ne- I'm not going to see you anymore. Yeah. This is the end of us. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, he's very, is, is very, very good in this episode. Yeah, menacing and a jerk, and then also, yeah, that that's you shouldn't feel bad for the guy, but you feel a little bit bad, right? Just like the real Anthony Bourdain. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right, fantastic. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mallory, for doing the show. And um, if folks uh, should go to your website, reach it's the toast dot net, but it's it's the hyphen toast dot net. That's right. It's not one word. Toast dot net. It's a website about actual toast. Got that one. I don't know. 
I'm just assuming. Or it could be I about drinks. It's, I don't know. It's the Toast uh, Syndicate of America, I think. Oh, that must be. But I've confused things enough. I should say it again. It's thehyphentoast.net. Uh, you're so Mostly it's libertarian erotica. Yeah, uh, so that's good. That uh, John, make up another one of those Venn diagrams. Got it. <laughs> libertarian erotica and Columbo. <laughs> said that's where the show ends up going in the 1990s. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for doing the show. Uh, your column was great. When we saw it, you know, I think you separately, we both thought like, oh, we need to get that person on the program. Cause that I'm be so glad that you perfect. guys did. I had such a good time. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad, well thank you. We very loved much. having you here. Yes. And we, we might uh, bother you again about it as we start to... I think you should. Having like Excellent. another 50 episodes on the line. We're like, oh, crap. We're, we, let's start going back <laughs> through the list again. How um, many people do we know? <laughs> who actually watch Columbo to want to talk about it on the fake internet radio show. <laughs> and speaking of this fake internet radio show, uh, like I said before, uh, you can email us now at columbo at cds.net with uh, questions, comments. Um, if you uh, want to listen to this show uh, someplace else, who knows how you got this on your little device. Who knows if you went to our website at cds.net slash just one more thing, or if you went to the podcast section of iTunes. Maybe find if maybe find it one, don't know the other exists. Well, they're both out there. And if you do get it from iTunes and you happen to like it, want to drop us a review, that would be okay too. We would not hate you for doing that. Uh, we also have a Tumblr. Uh, it's John. Team, what's team, team Columbo. Tumblr. I should have written that. I should wrote down the word Tumblr. Hey guys, did you know there's a website <laughs> called Tumblr? That's the program. I'm R.J. White. I'm John Morris. And we'll talk to you next time. And here's hoping that when you die. It's of old age. Old age. See ya. Bye. Oh, listen, just one more thing. I smoke grass sometimes, just about like you drink gin. Didn't you ever have a drink of gin during Prohibition when gin was illegal? And let's not get smart about how old I am.